calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. This week, we're going to feel like a kid again. It's episode 481 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. And first, I just want to say that, yeah, it's a new release schedule this week. I should have said something about it last week at the end of the show. I'll be honest, I forgot. Totally forgot. So yeah, new show's going to be coming out on Mondays from now on. It's just a little bit of a change in schedule. I do have a day job. I'm sure that if you follow me on social media, you know that by now. But I do have a day job. Things have kind of changed in that regard. So it's just easier to release shows on Monday. Plus, you know, I figure it's a little bit better for Fridays. I, I can maybe talk about a little bit more stuff. There'll be some nerd news stuff that I might not miss that I would sometimes miss because it didn't come out until Friday and the show was already published at that point. So Mondays just seem like a better day. If you hate it, you can let me know if you love it or if this is more convenient for you. Also, let me know that as well at Down and Nerdy 757. That's, you know, most of the places you can find me on social media. So, yeah, do that. Let me know what you think. And if it bugs you, you know, maybe I'll switch it back. But for now, this is just something that works a little bit better with my schedule. Hopefully not a big deal for you guys. But as far as this week's show goes, I'm going to be talking to Eric Burnham about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Saturday Morning Stories. This is the comic from IDW. It's going to bring you right back to the classic cartoon that you loved, that you grew up with. So whether you went to see Mutant Mayhem this weekend or not, it'll give you that nostalgic feel. Anyway, I get a chance to talk to him at the IDW booth at Comic-Con, actually. So I always love having Eric on the show. He's always so excited to talk about so many amazing fandoms. We're going to talk a little G.I. Joe, too. Just a little behind the scenes of what you're going to get for the interview. Also, I'm going to talk about The Little Mermaid, the 2023 live-action version. It's finally on digital HD, so I'm going to go ahead and review that. I know I'm a little late, but, you know, give me a break. I was at Comic-Con. I didn't have a chance to review it during the Comic-Con show because there was, you know, too much to talk about. I'm also going to give you an update on the Writers Guild coming back to the table with the with these with the studios actually i should say the studios coming back to the table with the writers guild because they were the, they were the ones kind of holding things up and you know what the sticking points are there now and some other strike related stuff that you might find interesting and yeah i'm going to talk about the Stephen and mel comments like i know it's been a few days i've had a few days to think about it so yeah i think i think that i still have to talk about this for sure but right now i'm going to talk to eric burnham let's talk about to him next about some teenage mutant ninja turtles We'll do it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Kevin Eastman, co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you're listening to me on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
having a lot of fun at the IDW booth here at Comic Con 2023. And, and you've heard this guy on the show before. He, he does a great job with so many books, so many properties that you know. But well, we're going to be talking Ninja Turtles for sure today with Eric Burnham. Eric, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. It is Saturday. I'm still ambulatory. So, I mean, you cannot ask for anything more at Comic Con. Speaking of Saturday, let's just do, jump right into that. So, not only do you get to do turtles, you get to do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Saturday morning adventures when you first started getting into that. How exciting was that? Because it's like doubly exciting, isn't it? A hundred percent. Saturday morning uh, cartoon, well, the, the cartoon from 1987 was exactly what introduced me to the Ninja Turtles. I said so at the, uh, the panel we had this morning. I lived in the middle of nowhere. So it was the cartoon that introduced me and probably a whole lot of other people to the concept. And later when I found out that these were comics too, this is so great. It just it opened new doors, and it, it brought me a very weird, wonderful world that I'm grateful it introduced me to. So being able to work on this specific iteration of the Turtles, it, it's kind of a dream job. It, it is a dream job. It's not kind of a dream job. It 100% is where I get to have all the weird fun I want. Nothing is off limits because it has enough comedy that insane works. Breaking the fourth wall works. Bad puns work. I love it. So when you're working on a book like this, it, there's no real question what the art style is going to be, but at the same time, how do you find the right artist to kind of bring that style up? Because the second somebody picks up this book, they're going to have that set of expectations. So how do you go about working with an artist to do that? Well, you know, we, we have tried and do try to keep it relatively on model, at least at the beginning. We've we've moved a little bit to, to a little bit of artistic interpretation, but it's still definitely recognizable when you look at it. This is the, uh, the Ninja Turtles from the cartoon. They're recognizable. We get it. And uh, we've had artists, we've had Dan Schoening has done a few issues, Sarah Meyer has done a few issues for us, Jack Lawrence, Tim Laddie, and everybody brings the flair and the vibe and the animated, well, I mean, it's, it was cartoon, but the, the animated adventures, the animated expressions, just the characters come to life under their pencils. And so everything is... It's just, well, it's, it's just magnificent. It's fantastic, and uh, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of, of how you know, babbling, trying to praise them enough. It's just we let them do their thing. They make it recognizable. They have fun, and the love pours through the panels, and it all works together. No doubt. Now, obviously, there's a wealth of stories that were told throughout that animated series, but you want to come up with some new stuff of your own that maybe fans didn't see. Was there a specific thing that you want to do or specific characters? You're like, I'd like to use these more in this particular setting. Well, working at like the animated series, they did things like, okay, we'll throw in a character and he may only, this he or she may only show up once. They may show up recurring. They may, you know, you might not see him again for a year, uh, that kind of thing. And they took characters from the toy line and did different things from them. Wingnut and Screwloose were, uh, I remember, uh, heroes in the toy line. They showed up on the show as a villain. So we were given a little bit of license to take stuff from the turtle lore and we could sprinkle it in. So stuff from the cartoon series that hasn't been seen in comics, stuff from other comics is a possibility. You know, if, if I present them with a story idea and they say, yeah, no, that's okay, that's fine. So I mean, something, one that came up, I used as an example, this is not a spoiler. I said, what if I did old Hob from IDW and made an 87 version of him? Would you say yes to that? And they said, if the story's good, we would say yes to that. So that kind of gave me the parameters of the sandbox and let me know where I had the room to play and, and what I could grab and what I couldn't. You know, I mean, having that many options on the table, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing for this book. And I, I'm, I'm just 
super excited. We worked out a years, uh, a year-long plot ahead of time. They're all they're they're all standalone stories, but they have an undercurrent, a, a subplot that culminates uh, around the end of the first year. We, we've got to do so much. Uh, I just turned in a, a story with Mr. Og from nice. the animated show, who is a little Mr. Mixties Pitalix slash Q slash you know whatever pixie imp. So we brought him back and did something different with him. And that I can't wait for people to see. It was the most the most fun I've had in this very fun series. I was actually just going to ask you that because you've done some other Turtles books before, and it's been you know, a little bit little bit more on the serious side than this one is. How how much fun is it to be able to get back to having fun with the Turtles? Because there's so much serious stuff, like last run, like even the regular run's been pre pretty serious at times. How has it been to kind of just be able to sit back and have fun with these characters? Oh, that's a breath of fresh air. I do love the serious stuff. I do love oh, being able sure. to write, you know. The, the straightforward action, but humor is uh, kind of where my heart lies and, you know, arguably where my talent lies. So I, uh, I, I appreciate being able to just, how do I write, uh, how do I get out of this corner that I painted myself into? I know, I'll break the fourth wall, say something silly, and cut to a new scene. With that kind of option, which works in a comedy and nowhere else, makes it easy to write because nothing is, you know, nothing is too strange or too off color. <laughs> if I if I keep to the proper tone, and now you expect that kind of stuff from Mikey, obviously. But how much fun is it to add a little bit more humor to characters like Raph yeah. and even Leo, and to a certain extent to those characters? Because you know, often they're always presented as the as the serious types, and you get to have a little bit more fun with them in that in that manner. Well, here's the thing: Leonardo was serious, Donatello was serious, Michelangelo was goofy, but Raphael was the really he was the one who was breaking the fourth wall the most in the old cartoon. I watched an episode where Schroeder says, I, I can't remember what he said, but Raphael said, are you leaving the show? And I'm just like, this is fantastic. They cannot say that I, I'm uh, doing this incorrectly if I if I do something right. like that, you know? So, I mean, Raphael is, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, to spoil it because it's going to be in the uh, preview soon. Uh, Mr. Og shows up to put Raph on trial for breaking the fourth wall. Ooh, that's, see, that's juicy, Eric. Mm -hmm. That's juicy. That's it. So, so that's what people have to look forward to. I shatter the fourth wall in that issue, and I, I'm so excited to see what people uh, think of it. So. The smile on your face when you just said that. I mm -hmm. wish the people could see it because that's oh. that's incredible. Uh, but. That's not the only Saturday morning adventure you've been doing. I mean, G.I. Joe, oh, yeah. Saturday morning adventures. You want to talk about crazy dialogue in a, in a, in a cartoon series, Eric. That one certainly had. So how much fun was it playing in that world as well? You know, anytime I get to write dialogue where Chris Latta's voice is playing through my head, it's a good time. Cobra Commander was a lot of fun years back when I got to do uh, Starscream in the, in the Ghostbusters Transformers crossover. That was fun. He has such a fun cadence of speech to write. So, yeah, the G.I. Joe book was an absolute blast. For that, I mean, there are many reasons, but that was the big reason for me. There's been a lot of great Turtles crossovers, and there's, and there's certainly one running right now, actually, through IDW. How do we get these two worlds together? How do we get G.I. Joe and Turtles together at some point? Because I think that would be fun, in maybe even a Saturday morning adventure type vibe. I mean, at this point, that's uh, that's all up to Hasbro. You know, we they, they would have to they would have to work out that deal amongst themselves. But I mean, I'm, I'd be open to doing it if if they were. So, is there a turtle story 
that you'd still love to tell? You've gotten to tell a few. Is there a story or maybe a particular character that you'd like to get their own story for? Because I know you've done like stuff with Karai. You had a really nice story with Karai. Are there any other characters you'd like to give a huge spotlight to outside of maybe the main turtles? See, I mean, that's the thing. I will say yes, because even though I can't think of anything strictly off the top of my head while I'm put on the spot, I know that there is stuff that even if I'm writing a story, things will occur to me, you know, going through this, going through this, writing this, and I'm like, all of a sudden, man, you know, this would be, this line, this joke, this reaction really opens up this character into something that could turn into a story, and that's how my brain works, and that's something that now I'm writing with uh, Untold Destiny. I, I've been working with, with Natsu, who, who I created with Sophie Campbell, Clyde, the punk frog, and uh, Zodian Krisa, and all these characters, and there's there's bits in there where their, their uh, personalities uh, clashing with each other and other mutants and other ninjas and all this stuff. They're opening up ideas for new stories, and that happens anytime I write a book. So the answer is yes, absolutely, but also I don't know who. It's option paralysis. Well, we'll have to wait and find out, but right now, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Saturday Morning Adventures is available from IDW. Make sure you get the G.I. Joe Saturday Morning Adventures as well. Just read them together. It's fun, because this guy likes to have a lot of fun with it. Eric Burnham, man, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me, man. Thanks for something about One thing I always love about talking to Eric Burnham is that the guy just knows how to have fun when it comes to these properties. He just, just goes in there as a fan, but as a knowledgeable fan, as someone who knows how to structure stories and just put something together that just makes you happy. And, and that's just the way I always felt when I was reading these Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Saturday morning stories, comics, and even the G.I. Joe ones as well. Because if you look back at the G.I. Joe animated series from, from the 80s and from my youth, a lot of ridiculous stuff in there. And he just he doesn't shy away from it. And and it was just it was just fun. It was a fun time. These both of these amazing animated series in comic form, just as enjoyable as they were on the screen and Eric Burnham's just the right guy to do that. So so happy I got a chance to catch up with him and talk about that at Comic Con. You know, just share some fandoms with him again. It's just always it's always fun having him on the show. So make sure you run to IDW and get those. Either at your local shop, you can probably pick those up at your local comic book shop still. Digitally an option as well if that's the route that you want to go. Again, thanks to Eric Burnham and the wonderful people at IDW Publishing for letting me talk about these Saturday morning stories with them. At Comic-Con, up next, we'll head under the sea and talk about the Little Mermaid live-action version. Maybe some spoilers thrown in there next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Eric Burnham, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The live-action remakes keep rolling for Disney, and I'm sure you probably saw it already before it hit Digital HD, but the Little Mermaid is now on Digital HD, and actually Walt Disney Pictures did provide me with a free copy of this movie for review. All opinions here are my own and here's the deal you you've you've you know read ad nauseum about the casting of this thing and you know and especially the casting of ariel and i'm not gonna get into that okay because i think it's ridiculous it's it's ridiculous for a lot of reasons there's no reason to focus on that so that's not going to be the focus of my review here i could promise you that so if you were coming into this review looking for something like that that is not what you're going to get you're going to get my overall impressions of this movie and just on its value of the movie itself. Now, again, not a lot of surprises here, right? Because if you were a fan of the animated Little Mermaid already, then it, it, you're going into this basically, you know the story, you know the characters, but then you're going to make the obvious comparisons of the characters to their animated versions. And here's the thing about Little Mermaid. 
one of the things about these animated movies is that when you see a movie for the first time, and whether it be Little Mermaid or, you know, when they did Lion King, whatever, you, you, you fall in love with that movie in the moment, right? And because it's new, it's fresh, you're getting this story that in some cases isn't 100% new, but new enough or maybe something you weren't as familiar with, right? And now you're re-familiarizing yourself with this in this animated movie. And in some cases, not all, but like it's hard to capture that magic a second time in a live action version. I get the want to see this in live action and see, you know, actors bring this to life in this live action form and seeing how they can create the visuals. But sometimes the animation is done in animation for a reason because while it still costs a lot to animate these movies and do this thing, but it's a, it costs a lot more and can look a lot worse when you're doing it in live action. So as far as the visuals of this thing were concerned, I thought they were okay for the most part. I thought that, you know, you obviously you're updating something visually that was made a long time ago before there were a lot of the advancements in technology that we have now, but you're also doing it live action. So you're going to have to rely heavily on CG animation. And some of it was good. Like the, the CG for Sebastian, I thought was very good. I thought that they did that pretty well but I thought you know Ursula while Melissa McCarthy's overall look I thought was good there were some moments in that where I thought it was you know looked a little sloppy could have been better the you know the grand finale there where she you know she you know just has that you know massive presence in the sea I thought that was done all right but again there were just moments where it was just her as Ursula in her normal form that just you know didn't hit the mark for me, it just didn't look like this epic multi-million dollar production that Disney would put on. I thought that Ariel looked fine. I thought that was good. I thought that the, the look for King Triton, I thought that was really good as well. But there were just some other looks that just did not work for me, unfortunately. I'm sorry. I just, it just didn't. And I maybe it's because of the high standard that I set for Disney and the budget that they have for these movies. And it's like, really, you spent all that money and that's the best you could do sort of, sort of thing. So, but especially some of the underwater effects. And I know you can only do that, but so well, but at the same time, it, it's like, come on, you couldn't, you couldn't have done a little bit better with this. So I'm nitpicking a little bit, probably because it's Disney. But again, this is my point of, you know, did we need to do this sort of thing? As far as the actual performances go from the actors, I actually thought, the Jonah Howard King's Eric, I thought was really good. That was one of the things I was impressed with in this movie. I thought that he really nailed the everyman persona. I thought he really, you know, that that the you know the common bond that he and Ariel shared of feeling like they were with, with over controlling parents and had these certain expectations set for them, sort of thing. I thought he nailed that really well. And you know, a guy that you really wanted to root for. And, and, you know, and a good singer, too. Not the best singer on the, in the movie, but still a pretty good singer. So I thought he did really well. I thought Javier Bardem did just fantastic as King Triton. He brought he had just had that presence about him. You know, he, you, you hated him when you were supposed to hate him. You loved him when you were supposed to love him. But he just had that, you know, ominous presence about him that was just so great. And I thought that he was a perfect choice when they cast him. And I thought it worked out really well in the movie itself. Art Malik deserves a lot of credit as Sir Grimsby. I'm sorry. I, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised 
by his performance because that's just one of those characters, right? You could have easily pushed to the side and, you know, not really cared about a whole lot. I know Little Mermaid fans will argue with me on that, that, that he's probably more important. But at the same time, that's one of those characters you could have not necessarily focused on as much. And I thought that he, he you know, through his performance, he showed you why that character was so important to Eric and important to the story overall. You know, maybe a sneaky, important character in the overall story. So bravo to them for realizing that and and for Art for bringing that out in his performance. I loved him. I loved to be Diggs as Sebastian. One of my favorite characters in the whole movie was Sebastian. Just the, you know, the, the witty little quips that he has during the movie. Just, you know, the way he feels like, you know, this isn't my job. I shouldn't have to follow around a moody teenager sort of thing. Loved that. I thought that he brought up. Actually, if there was a if there was a character that they brought a different presence to, I thought Sebastian was it. I mean, I mean, obviously there were some there were some similarities to the original movie. I, I understand that, but at the same time, David Diggs took it to a different level and a different presentation in this movie, and I thought did a really good job at that. Aquafina was fun as Scuttle, and you know, you're okay now. You're gonna come at me with the well, you haven't said anything about Ariel yet. Melissa McCarthy as Ursula was exactly what I expected, and she did a very good job. I almost think that they didn't give her enough of a chance to do the job she could have done. I thought that we, if you're going to make the the movie two hour and 15 minutes long, which I didn't think you had to, you could have given me a little bit more Ursula than you did. I felt like it was took for, and you know, we'd get little bits and pieces here and there, but it took forever for them to get to the, to, to get to the heart of that. And I could have got a little bit more of that, honestly. So I'm not sure that they really gave her what she deserved. As far as Halle Bailey's concerned, as Ariel. First of all, her singing. Girl can sing. No doubt about that. I mean, as, as far as the songs go, no problem there at all. I thought that the songs were spot on, especially from her. She definitely carried the load there and had a fantastic performance in these songs. I thought that I actually thought her her the the, the costuming, the look there was really good as well. I thought that they did a good job at putting that together. But as far as like the actual performance was concerned, you could tell, I mean, this is, this is a newcomer, right? You could tell that she was fairly new. You could tell that she didn't have a whole lot of experience. I thought that, you know, she could have brought a little bit more to the role. I'm nitpicking. I get it. But again, it's hard for somebody, anybody to recapture the magic of a performance that you've seen before. That is why what she was asked to do was so difficult for someone that is a newcomer because you know there's not as much pressure for the 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 facial expressions and the body language and the body movement and stuff like that in animation for an actor as there is in live action so it's almost not a fair comparison right to to put her up against the animators that did such a great job with the original little mermaid movie with all of those things in mind. So it's, I don't think it's a really fair comparison, but at the same time, you know, it just didn't have that wow factor for me. Like I was kind of hoping that it would, the songs absolutely did. You could argue that the songs she actually raised the bar for the songs, but that's across the board because I thought, you know, under the sea from David Diggs nailed it. They, freaking nailed it and having somebody like David Diggs in your you know in your you know wheelhouse there to be able to do something like that 
you know, smart, very smart casting there. And, you know, Jonah Howard King deserves a lot of credit for his musical abilities as well. Like I said, he was, he was all right. He wasn't the best one, but I still thought he did a pretty darn good job. This is a classic case to me of why we have to be really careful of doing stuff like this, bringing stuff from animation into live action, especially if it's something that's on the level of Little Mermaid. I still think Beauty and the Beast is the only one they were, they were able to really do and do correctly and bring it out and make it almost just as good as its animated predecessor. And I'll even throw Lion King in there, Jungle Book, all the ones that they've done so far, they have not quite, to me, lived up to the original just because that is a tough freaking thing to do. If you wanted to take something that wasn't as iconic and do that in live action, to me that seems like it would be a safer bet and it would be something that maybe people would go see because maybe they're not as familiar with it for one, but for two, you know, you're you're not holding it as to, as to high of a standard and maybe that's my problem and the problem of, of other people that are doing the same thing. But it's the same thing with reboots and remakes, as far as I'm concerned. Whether it be live action to live action or, or live action or animation to live action, is you better give me something that's going to make me look at the original and go, oh wow, I think that they did that better, or they updated that really well, or something like that. You know, they they had a tall order here, effects wise, and they fell short. That's the first thing that they kind of fell short in is they had a tall order effects wise and didn't bring it as good as they could have because again that is a tall order tough task and a very hard ask for them to do and you're you're asking a Halle Bailey who is not as experienced of an actress and that's not her fault either by the way you know I they, they cast her probably mostly for her musical ability which was was a good call but when it came to the actual acting bits it was really not quite as there as I would have liked it to be, partially, I think, because of her inexperience. And, you know, she's going to get better. She's only going to get better. You know, Zendaya wasn't amazing when she first started either acting. You t- you take, you could also talk about Rihanna. You talk about anybody that came from a mostly musical world and bringing them into acting. There were a lot that were not as good when they first started and then they got better (laughs) unlike Madonna that never got there in the first place she was just never good and some of them aren't but at the same time it's to me it was a tough ask for her so I don't necessarily I don't blame her at all I just think that you know her inexperience showed a little bit here and the movie itself if I'm giving it an overall vibe it was okay it wasn't bad it wasn't great it was okay it was in that middle of the road type thing the songs I thought they did a good job with I thought they kissed the girl when they did that when they did the song and they brought that together visually as far as song and visual that's probably the best one that they did in the entire movie as far as translating that from animation to live action I thought that they were able to capture that one pretty well but some of these other ones they didn't quite make the mark they tried but didn't quite get there so that's why this one I would just say was just okay for me. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Disney's The Little Mermaid, the live-action version. I'm sure that you guys are going to have something to say about my review about that, and that's just fine. I am ready for that. Up next, there's going to be a lot of controversial stuff to talk about in nerd news. So just, you know, hang with me with this. I promise we'll get through it. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside with the kids recently. And yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me. As well, it's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey, this is writer Kyle Higgins, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you strike the iron or not, it's pretty hot. It's time for nerd news, and you know how much I love Stephen Amell. I've talked about this at great length. If you've been a show, fan of the show for a while, you know how much I love Stephen Amell. You know how much I loved Air. I still do. But, yeah, there you, you've seen it by now, probably. But I'm going to go ahead and recap it for you just in case. When Stephen Amell was at GalaxyCon in Raleigh, North Carolina, he was doing a Q&A during the convention, and somebody asked him about the strike. And this is the portion of what he said that is making everyone so upset. He said, and I quote, and I stand with them, talking about his fellow actors and writers, I do not support striking. I don't. I think that it is a reductive negotiating tactic. I find the entire thing incredibly frustrating. And he throws myopic in there at some point too. And he he goes on a couple of days after that, he goes on to try and, you know, he tries to walk it back a little bit. He tries to clarify it. He says he does support his union and that should kind of go without saying. And he says something about, you know, the proverb, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, which, you know, I, here's the here's the thing. And he's going to, and he's, he, and he also goes on to say, by the way, he says, however, at least for the foreseeable future, I choose to stand with my union. When you see me on the picket line, please do not whip any hard fruit. Okay, so if you want to see the entire entirety of what he said, it's on social media. If you want to see the entirety of his response, it's on social media. I'm not here to read to you stuff that's already there. I gave you the, the, the bits and pieces that you needed for me to go ahead and talk about this. Okay, so I am now keep in mind, I am going to talk about this, and it's okay to talk about both sides. You can yell at me if you want and say, no, it's not. You either support the union or you don't, okay? And I actually do. In this particular case, if I'm looking at both sides objectively, I support the things that the union wants. I think that they are well within their rights to want those things, and I'm not talking about the people that are up at the top 
making 25 plus million dollars per project or millions of dollars per episode. I'm talking about the people that usually don't get the respect or the pay that they deserve or the condi- or sometimes the conditions that they deserve either. But you know, even the people that make the top flight money deserve some basic, you know, human necessities and things like that, like breaks and all this. But I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. I want to stick to Stephen Amell. Now, here's the thing, and I'm going to try, and I'm going to look at this objectively, okay? You have to understand something, or maybe you don't. I say that as, as you know, in a hyperbole. I don't, I'm not telling you what to do. I want to be very clear on that. He has a right to be frustrated. He does, because he at the time he was you know he's trying to promote heels right when the strike happens by the way the press day for heels i want to make this very clear the press junket for heels the interviews and all that stuff happened before the strike at least a week before the strike if i'm not mistaken and i know this because i saw bits and pieces of it on social media and i saw the friends of mine that did it i didn't get invited but whatever i'm not bitter about that at all but i did the one last year Here's the thing, though. That was done beforehand, and I had I was told that 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 Stephen Amell was not able to participate in said junket, whatever reason that was, or whether he did or didn't, or whether he just did some select interviews is not for me to say. But I'm just going to say that the press junket for that show was done prior to the strike, so they did get their press in for heels before the strike. Now, does that mean? That he could talk about the show after the strike. That's the, the the rules of the union say he cannot. Okay, but they fought very hard uh, to get a second season of Heels, and this is something that kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And we hadn't seen trailers, hadn't heard a peep about it. Seemed like it was wasn't going to happen, you know. That and it seemed like you know eventually. You know, the fans, you know, spoke up enough and, and and I'm sure Stephen Amell himself and a lot of other people that are involved in that show fought for that show. Season two, it was was already made and it is it's been released. It's since been released by stars. That's where you can watch it if you so choose. But so this is a show that probably needs as much chatter as it can get from its stars, right? And and that's one of the things that you know, help shows succeed is stars, you know, live tweeting and stuff like that during these shows. Take from, for example, from MGM Plus, that cast going all in for this second season and even the first season, help them get a second season in the first place and build that frumily. Heels needs that sort of promotion and it can't get it. So it's a it is a it is a well done show too. You could say what you want about Stephen Amell. There's other actors and actresses and people that put that show together. They do a fantastic job with it, and it is a great show about wrestling. It's a good drama. There's a lot of good things about it, but it's on stars. No shade to stars. Not everybody has stars. Not everybody is necessarily going to get stars because of heels either, but at the same time, this is a show that doesn't have millions upon millions upon millions of eyeballs all the time, like a show on Netflix or something like that would have. you got to scratch and claw for every eyeball you can get. And if, you re- if you're introducing somebody to a show for the first time, you can only kind of really do that by promoting it constantly. They can't do that right now based on the rules of the strike. And if this was your job, and your job depended on you constantly having to, this podcast that I'm doing now, I realize that I am not nearly on the level of some other podcasts as far as promotions and popularity is concerned. 
and that's a, and that's okay. Hopefully, I st- I'll get there someday. It's been a long ride as it is, but hopefully, you know, I can get there at someday. And I, I appreciate everybody always talking about this show as much as they can. But if you told me tomorrow that I couldn't talk about my podcast, tweet about it, whatever at all, that's gonna that would be, that would be extremely frustrating for me because I need that ability to be able to get it out there to people. You know, for my livelihood, for, you know, I'm this just bring in some money for me and my family. And, you know, and I've, I've a, I have a very large family. I have three kids. I've got a wife. I've got people to support. And this podcast helps me do that. And if you told me tomorrow that I couldn't, that would be difficult for me. Now you're saying, okay, James, are you really comparing yourself to somebody who made millions of dollars on a TV show? That's not the same thing. True, but... Stephen Amell's not the only person on that TV show. He does, however, happen to be the one that everybody knows the most that can promote this TV show. So it's the trickle-down effect of if Stephen Amell talks about it a lot, then a lot of these other actors that are on this show will pro- might be back for a third season, not solely because of Stephen Amell, but because of their performances and the platform that Amel has, and some other actors too have pretty good platforms on that show, that you can bring to that and get yourself a second season, third season, whatever, of a show based on things like that. So I understand why he's frustrated that he cannot talk about it. But at the same time, you're in a union, dude. These are rules that you agreed to a long time ago. It's like not reading the fine print in a contract. And I'm sure he was aware of all of these things when he joined the union. At least I would hope that he is, right? You have to understand that when stuff like this happens and you're in a union, the choice is not yours alone. The choice is the collective when you're in a union. And if you don't like it, it's kind of tough. And yeah, there was not a unanimous vote for this strike. It was pretty unanimous. I think it was like 92%. Or it was 98%, and there were 2% that, that, that voted no, and I guess we know where he stands, or maybe we don't. But you have to understand that when you're in a union, and this isn't just for actors. UPS just had a potential strike that, that was averted recently, too. There's a lot of unions. You've got the Teamsters, and I'm not going to go down the list, but again, you agree as a collective to collective bargaining, and that's kind of what's going on here between SAG After and the studios. And you have to abide by that if you're a member of the union, whether you voted yes or not. That doesn't preclude him from being bound by that, but it doesn't preclude him from being frustrated about it either. You can be frustrated about something in general and not, and that's okay. I'd be frustrated too. I think that, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, you know, we're frustrated that this strike is happening. Because, you know, we want, we want the stuff that we love to continue to be made uninterrupted. But at the same time, it gets to a point where if you can't get certain things that you think are deal breakers and strikes happen sort of thing. So, you know, and, you know, I'll talk about the negotiations coming up here in a second. But the frustration, I think, is an okay thing. Now, did, was, he, was what he said, you know, kind of dumb? Yeah. Was it ill-timed? Yeah. And he says, oh, I wish these comments to get made public. Then why did you say it during a panel at a comic book convention with hundreds of phones around you? That's a little short-sighted and disappointing, if I'm being honest. Of course it was going to be made public 
Because people were going to post that thing and, oh, this is going to get retweeted over and over and over and over again. Of course I'm going to post this. Yeah, I don't blame them for posting it at all. So, I, again, I it's, I get why he's frustrated. I think he's got a point about why he's frustrated. But at the same time, you got to abide by the rules that are put in front of you. And you can't take selfies in front of billboards about your show and post it on social media because that's not the rules either. You might not like the rules. But those are the rules, and there are consequences if you decided to point, you know, put a middle finger up to the rules, which at times it seemed like he was doing. So is Stephen Amell going to be able to recover from this? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But he's not the only one that has kind of, you know, spoken out about how frustrating this thing is. Zachary Levi was at a fan event recently. And, of course, you know, he was just he's Shazam and Tangled and, you know, Chuck, which is something that, People love quite a bit, myself included. And he was talking about how you know frustrated he is, too. And there's a clip of this. I'm trying to figure out what event this was that he that that he was at. And I can't quite find the name of it, so excuse me for not knowing exactly what the name of it was. But I am going to read this to you because, because this one didn't get nearly as much publicity as what Amel said. Because fans were trying to ask him about, you know, about Chuck and Shazam and some of the other stuff he's in. And he said, I, and I quote, I'm not allowed to talk about it. This is so dumb. I'm not allowed to talk about my previous work. He kind of goes on to say, I'm not allowed to talk about movies that I may be a superhero in. I'm not allowed to talk about TV shows that I may have been a nerd who worked at a Best Buy. I'm not allowed to talk about any animated princess movies that I was that was that I was fantastic in as the best prince ever. I'm not allowed to talk about those things. And to the and, you know, he kind of goes on after that, but I'm not going to read the, the rest of it. So and and he's and there's Zachary Levi abiding by the rules right that those were the rules that were put in front of him. Now he kind of tap dances and tiptoes around it a little bit. But those those are the rules and he followed them at the same time. I get it. That's still potential revenue for the studios. I understand that, you know, maybe somebody decides to, you know, go buy the complete series of Chuck after hearing Zachary Levi talk about it or, you know, go you know, the same thing with Stephen Amell and Arrow. And, you know, maybe nobody's somebody hasn't seen Shazam. So they subscribe to Max to to watch it or something like that. All understood. OK, all understood potential revenue. At the same time, it, we're not just going to forget that these things exist. Right. And in a convention setting. You've got people that are sitting in a room, and I'm talking specifically about conventions here. I'm not talking about social media. I'm talking specifically about conventions. You have people sitting in a room that you know paid decent decent amount of money to be there to talk to their favorite star, see their favorite star, whatever. Okay, but and then you're you're having the, you're telling that these these actors, it's okay to do a panel at a convention, but you can't talk about anything. What's the point? What is the point? You should not allow them to do panels at conventions if they're not allowed to talk about anything. Nobody wants to sit there and listen to Zachary Levi for 30 minutes talk about the craft. I'm sorry. They just don't. Not at cons. Okay? Not at cons. This isn't inside the actor's studio. I'm sure Zachary Levi and some of these other actors have amazing insight into the craft that is acting one of the hardest mental professions that you can have. And it's just and physical sometimes too, but nobody wants to sit at a con a convention 
and listen to him talk about that for 30 minutes. They want to hear him talk about the stuff that he was in. So if you're not going to let him do that, what's the point? This, so, so this to me is where the rules get a little bit stupid. You can let him go sign autographs at conventions and take pictures with fans. That should be perfectly fine. But as far as why are they allowed to do panels if they can't talk about any of this stuff? It makes zero sense whatsoever for sag after to be allowing these panels to happen at conventions when you're giving them nothing to talk about. It would be like throwing somebody in. There's been times where I've been asked to do interviews and this is going to, and you want to peel back the curtain. Let's go ahead and do that. There's been times where I've been asked to do interviews and you put me in a room with somebody or whatever. And you, and their character has like one line in the show or, or movie or whatever, whatever it is. They have one line in the show it's a, let's say, below-the-line character, to use an industry term. A character that's not a huge character or that doesn't have a huge impact on the particular story. You sit him down in front of me and say, you've got 10 minutes. Go ahead and chat. What About what? Like, I'll give you, I can give you five, but what are we going to chat about for 10 minutes? So it's, it's, it's frustrating for me to be put in that, in that position. Now, I'll talk to anybody all day long, and, and, I've, and I've definitely been able to do certain interviews that like that and 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 make them you know sound presentable and sound good because the you know the, the talent was enjoyable and funny and things like that but you're not able to talk about the things that they want you to talk about in these instances because there's just not a lot there what on earth is Zachary Levi supposed to talk about and at a convention and is it on him to say I'm sorry I can't do the panel maybe maybe it's on maybe it's on the talent to say they can't do the panel anymore, but then what are these conventions supposed to do? Or is this just the trickle-down effect? Is just this, this just the price that everybody has to pay to get these fair wages and fair, you know, fair things for that, that, that are being asked for by the unions? Because you're going to kill conventions, across, not the big ones, maybe some of the big ones, but not these smaller conventions are definitely not going to make it if you're not going to let these actors talk about the things that people are there to have them talk about. But again, they could still sign autographs. They could still take pictures with fans. I think that's probably more important to a lot of fans. But at the same time, got to be real, real careful here with what you do. And if you want to set certain certain rules, you just need to do it. If you don't want them doing talking about this stuff, just tell them not to do panels anymore. It should really be that easy. The union needs to take this one on the chin, not the actors, okay? That's just my opinion. If you want to, you know, and people probably wouldn't be mad at the union about it. So don't let people be frustrated with these actors when they go out there and basically say that they can't talk about anything. And then it's crickets on a microphone for like half an hour. I'm sorry, that, that, that one's just frustrating for me. Now, the good news is, is that the Writers Guild of America and the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers, they are back at the table. And that is a good thing. But a report from Variety revealed that the meeting that was held kind of didn't go so well. And there were a couple of non-starters that were involved in this whole thing. And the writers, of course, have said, you know, we're not starting work until the right, the, the strike is resolved. And this is just certain things that they want. And, you know, a, you know, protections against AI is one of the big sticking points in this whole thing. And and apparently they say that the studios just don't get it. As a matter of fact, I wanted to there was there was one tweet that I saw or X or whatever you want to call it, okay? Whatever you want to call this new thing, you want to call it X fine. 
you know, let's just go ahead and do that. So the other thing is the one of the things that's been a real sticking point is writers' rooms. Writers and showrunners want to keep the writers' rooms the way they traditionally are right now, and apparently the studios not quite not quite there. And I wanted to I want to read something a tweet from Julie Benson, who is a writer. She's written many you know great comics. She's written on many great shows as well. Out of respect to her and. And the striking workers, I'm not going to point out which ones those are because, you know, the promoting it and all that stuff. I want to be respectful of that and respectful of, of, you know, how she's presenting her tweets and stuff like that. And she was I want to paraphrase her her post here where she says she got the WGA WGA email about the talk. And she says, now I'm utterly depressed about my industry on fire. The AMPTP just does not get it. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. See y'all Monday on the lines. Unreal is what she says. And them not getting it seems to be a common thread. And and she also goes on to say, and this was another post that she had, she said, worst argument against writer's room minutes was the writer suffers, quote unquote, suffers from having the, that job, and in parentheses, from a showrunner mandated to hire, but potentially not use them. Yeah, because experience, credits, meetings, momentum, income, and healthcare are quote suffering, whereas being unemployed is not. And I, you know, I'm singling out Julie here, but this is sentiment that you're seeing kind of from a lot, and I mean a lot, of different writers. And you know, being able to pay, this is here's something we should all relate to. Okay, and I'm not telling you what side you should take in this thing. I'm really not. But if you can't relate to having the just having enough money to be able to pay for health care and still be able to feed your family and pay your pay your mortgage rent whatever it is you should be able to relate to that and if you can't you know good for you if you're just comfy cozy paying for all those things but if you're not then you should feel exactly what these writers are talking about. And I, and the writers specifically, I'm not saying that there aren't plenty of actors that don't have a heart as well, but to me, writers specifically, just, you know, that that has to be a struggle for them. So if it's still going this poorly in the negotiations, we better dig in, y'all, because it's going to be a long and hard road to get back to exactly where we need to be or if we ever get to where we need to be in the first place. I just hope that they find some sort of a compromise here. It just doesn't look like it though, does it anytime soon? And that's the frustrating thing. But at least if you want to hang your hat on something, at least talks are happening. Let's talk about strike proofing now. I know I've been talking about this for a while, but let's freaking go here, right? So Miss Marvel's airing on ABC because they obviously need stuff to air that isn't just reality programming, right? So it was was a Disney Plus show now airing on ABC. I thought it was interesting that they chose Miss Marvel, actually. I'm guessing it's because the Marvels is coming out, and it just made sense to air Miss Marvel as you're gearing up for that movie. So I get it. Maybe that's the right choice. I mean, I they, they could have also put on Loki to get you ready for season two of Loki on Disney Plus or you know whatever the rights were. For that, I don't know. So you've got that happening. I, I don't know how that residual and payment and stuff is going to go or whatever, but that's a conversation for another day and conversation for unions and not me. 
You've also got Yellowstone that's going to be airing on CBS this fall. Here was another one that I thought was a big eye popper. And this story came out recently as well as I sort of pull this thing up here because I want to make sure that I get this right. But AMC Networks recently said, their CEO said that as far as the strikes are concerned, it would not impact the Walking Dead programming on AMC until, quote, well into 2024. And I believe this was from Deadline that this was first put out. You know that they've got some stuff filmed already, right? And, and, you know, Daryl Dixon, apparently that's done. Fear the Walking Dead, that must be done, right? And the Walking Dead, the ones who live with, you know, Rick and Michonne, is going to be airing in, I think they said in 2024 as well. So if all those things are done, imagine how you're going to have Walking Dead stuff for a while before you have to worry about anything being shut down. And I'm sure it's not just The Walking Dead that has stuff filmed into, you know, the, that has stuff filmed well in advance. I'm sure that there are other things as well. So think about that for a second. When you go, oh, I bet the networks are going to be hard up for programming and all that. And, you know, maybe movie, maybe movie theaters are a different story. But as far as the networks and streaming services are, con- are concerned, there, it looks like there might be some st- plenty of stuff on the hopper that they can throw out there and uh, until, you know, they finally run dry. Now, is, is there a point where, you know, stuff's going to get rushed once, once everybody gets back to work? And will there be a gap there? There ultimately is going to be a gap there regardless. Or maybe they're going to stretch out release dates a little bit more so there is no gap. But you'd like to think there's probably going to be a gap at some point, right? So you have to be mindful of that. So while they say it won't impact it now, even if everybody gets back to work tomorrow, there's going to be some sort of an impact because of the length of time that everybody was not working in the first place. So don't think just because stuff stuff gets settled that there aren't going to be any gaps because there probably are regardless, but still that's pretty eye opening. If you're wondering how long the studios can wait it out, maybe longer than you think if they've got so much stuff in reserve that especially that in AMC's example, and this is AMC, right? This is AMC. We're talking about if they've got that much in reserve, that they that it won't be until well into 2024 until they're like, hey, we're running out of Walking Dead stuff. That should tell you a lot right there. That should tell you a ton about how far they can go. If AMC can do that, imagine what net looking at Netflix, you know, even some of these other, you know, like CBS, ABC, you know, some of these other studios. Imagine what they have going for them, right? And maybe it will be pulling stuff from other networks that are also owned under the same umbrella. And putting it on your network TV. Well, guess what? There are some people, by the way, that don't subscribe to Paramount Plus, that don't subscribe to Max, Disney Plus, stuff like that. If you throw something on a network where you can actually get it on a free over-the-air antenna, yes, kids, those still exist. You can actually get stuff on a network station and air it there. I promise you. I promise you. There are people that have not seen it yet that are going to watch it or at least give it a try. Right, and that will give them something to put on. Trust me when I tell you that there are people that have not seen the thing that you think everybody has seen. So don't think that this is a ridiculous thing that they're doing because it's not. All right, I'm gonna take a deep breath. Let's talk quickly about some stuff that is coming out. We know that Loki's gonna premiere season two 
on Disney Plus on October the 6th. The trailer for that dropped about a week ago. Screw it. I'm going to talk about it anyway. So if you're not in it almost solely because of the dynamic between Loki and Mobius, then, you know, what are you doing? Because that's, that's one of the reasons I love this show so much. And you get to see a lot of that in the trailer. And we get to talk about, you know, time slipping a little bit, right? And you're going to see them kind of go through time. I always think of Legends of Tomorrow when I think of this for some reason, because they, you know, that was the basis of DC's Legends of Tomorrow. But at the same time, I really love that we're going to get this in Loki form. And I, and I love that Loki says at one point, how do we decide who lives and who dies? And I'm thinking, well, that's that's interesting coming from Loki, right? Oh, how you know quickly we have changed our stripes a little bit here. And then you've got Sylvie, you know, you know, you, we we'd be playing God, and he says, you know, we are gods, and he's not totally wrong about that, right? But it is interesting the dynamic that they're going to have to play here to kind of figure things out. And you know, of course, you know, he who remains or Kang or whatever you want to call him in this context shows up and I'm going to be very interested to see from an, and I want to, and I have to throw this in there. If the whole, you know, if the accusations against Jonathan majors has any impact on whether or not people are going to be watching Loki, because is it going to be the Ezra Miller effect or not? Because this will be the first chance that we really get to see if it's going to affect things or not, because I get it. You know, a lot of the Ezra Miller stuff was on video and I don't want to compare the two situations, but at the same time, if we're not watching The Flash because of Ezra, are you not watching Loki because of what Jonathan Majors is being accused of? Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. It's just be, I think this is going to be an interesting, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if that affects it or not. We might not even find out because they'd have to release the streaming numbers at that point. And I'm not sure that that's something that they're going to do, unfortunately, because, you know, that's the thing about streaming services. It's really weird about you know, whether or not they actually share data on what's on what the viewing data is or not. Usually if it's good, they'll share it. If it's not, they kind of keep it to themselves. Good. But did I see Ki Hu Kwan in this trailer? Because I think I did. And I think I'm excited that he's a member of this cast because he just brings that. He brings another level of likability to the show that was already there. And what's going on with Miss Minutes? She's transformed. She looks pissed. You know, what is happening with Miss Minutes in this show because it's it's a little off the rails and I'll be honest I think I dig it a little bit based on what I'm looking at so yeah I think that the trailer was amazing I think it gives you a lot to be hyped about for season two of Loki and we'll just have to go ahead and see how it goes viewers wise I'm going to be watching just because I'm curious to see how things are going to go down but yeah Loki season two coming on October the 6th on Disney plus that's actually going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I was going to talk about a couple more trailers, but I think, I think that, you know, it's it's kind of, we've kind of gone on long enough here. But thank you so much for being okay with the date change and stuff like that. Make sure you're following on, along on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Down and Nerdy Pod on TikTok, at Down and Nerdy on Facebook. Get it all at downandnerdypodcast.com. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. 
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.